friends, really wonderful to have you with us here at Sun Hill Church this morning, whether you're in person, uh, which is especially great, but especially if you've been able to join us online, if you've not been able to find you here, your way here for other reasons, we are really glad that you've joined us uh, this morning, uh, and our prayer and our trust is that you'll be encouraged. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you back in person with us again soon. Uh, it'd be great if you had your Bibles open uh, to chapter uh, 31. Of Genesis. In fact, um, today we're going to be looking at uh, a little bit of a section before the one that was read, and we're not going to go all the way to Jacob's wrestle. We're going to spend a whole uh, a whole morning on that next week, uh, Jacob's wrestling uh, with this man. Uh, but we're going to begin today in Genesis chapter 31, uh, verse 19. So if you've got that handy there, uh, it will be a great assistance to you to have that. Uh, perhaps you're familiar with the phrase, to be without fear or favour, to be without fear or favour. Uh, it was coined by a publisher, um, Adolf Ox, and he phrased this, he coined this phrase uh, when he purchased the New York Times uh, in 1896. It was a phrase that he used to describe his general approach to journalism. Uh, to be without fear or favour means to not be swayed in either your behaviour or in your actions, by either the fear of others you might have, or out of the desire to secure their favour. And yet fear and favour are almost like the twin reins that seem to be steering just about every move that Jacob and Rachel make throughout the course of today's passage. Whether it's their fear of Laban, uh, who can see in a moment he's hot on their tails and pursuing them, as Jacob returns to his homeland, or whether it's their anxious desire to secure the favour of Esau a little bit later on in the passage. Both fear and favour exert their influence on just about every decision that Jacob and Rachel make uh, over the course of today's passage. And that influence of fear and favour is visible right from the start of where we'll be looking from today. Have a look with me in chapter 31, verse 19. Chapter 31, verse 19. Uh, you might recall from last week, Jacob uh, and Rachel and Leah are getting ready to return home uh, to uh, the household of Jacob's own father, Isaac. And we read in verse 19, chapter 31. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban there by not telling him that he was running away. So he fled with all he had, crossed the river Euphrates and headed for the hill country of Gilead. On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. Taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. Mm. Uh, although it's not immediately obvious uh, in our English translations, our passage describes the actions of both Rachel and Jacob using the very same phrase. Rachel, we're told, snuck away or stole away with her father's gods. And Jacob, we're told, snuck away or stole away with his family from Laban. Now Rachel's sneaky or sneaking or stealing away is quite clearly an act of theft in this case. Uh, these gods or ancestors were likely in the form of small little carvings or figures that were understood to secure the favour and the attention of one's ancestral 
relatives, perhaps, or gods or spirits. And Rachel is clearly superstitiously fearful that in leaving her father's household, she'd also be forfeiting the favour of his gods and his ancestors. Uh, can I maybe ask, I forget you might like scrape a glass of water. But it's not only Rachel who is stealing away or sneaking away. Jacob too is sneaking and stealing away. And Jacob is doing, I don't think he's doing anything particularly dishonest at this point, for it's his own family that he is sneaking away or stealing away from me. Even so, Jacob's anxious sneaking away certainly does signal an abiding fear that he has of Laban and Laban's power. A fear that ultimately compromises his calm and settled trust in God. Even while we might be expressing or exercising faith and trust in God, our trust can still sometimes be threaded through with strands of either misplaced fear or the desire of the faithful of others. Like Rachel, perhaps, we're hesitant that in following God we might be leaving behind the favour of others who we imagine might be able to benefit us in ways that God won't prove to Like Jacob, perhaps we might be fearful that God would be able to faithfully deliver on the things that he has promised and guaranteed. Now we can, of course, I'm sure, empathise with Jacob's lingering fear. For as the events progress, Laban certainly acts true to form from what we've seen of him throughout the course of this account. When Laban catches up with the fleeing family, he accuses Jacob in verse 26 of having stolen his daughters as if they were war captives. And in verse 27, Laban laments that Jacob had denied him the chance to throw a joyful farewell celebration with music and dancing and all the rest of it. Though, of course, if you can remember from earlier on in the accounts, the last time that Laban threw a party for Jacob we know farewell, full well, that he pulled a deceitful wife swap on his own daughters, causing all manner of grief for the family that kind of followed on after. If Laban promises to throw your party, beware. And then in verse 29, Laban aggressively threatens Jacob. And when he catches up with him, he says, I have the power to hurt you, to do you harm. And then down in verse 43, Laban insists, The women with you are my daughters. The children you have are my children. The flocks are my flocks. All you see, Jacob, is mine. And yet, although it's perfectly understandable that Jacob might be fearful when you've got someone like this pursuing pot and tail, Jacob's fear actually turns out to be quite misplaced. Have a look at me in verse 24 first. Uh, in 31, verse 24, we read in the midst of uh, Laban pursuing Jacob, Then God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream that night, and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And then Laban relays this story down in verse 29, down to verse 29. 
Jacob, uh, Laban says to Jacob, I have the power to harm you. But last night, the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. God, not for the last time, is more than attentive to the perils that Jacob is facing. God intervenes to warn off Laban from both threatening Jacob or perhaps even flattering him with favours. Laban has wronged Jacob in both those ways in the past, hasn't he? Threats and promise of favours in order to lure him and try and keep control of him. Each of those things, the, 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 the fear of threat and the lure of favours, each had the potential to divert Jacob from the blessings that God himself had promised to deliver. But God steps in and warns Laban. Now, Laban isn't only angry about what he considers to be the threat of his death of his grandchildren and his daughters. Laban is equally enraged by the sneaking away of his household gods or ancestral totems. Unlike Jacob's sneaking away his family, Rachel's sneaking away of Laban's so-called gods is an act of theft. And unaware that it's Rachel who is the culprit, Jacob declares that the theft of uh, Laban's household gods is an offence that will leave you for the penalty of death, down there in verse 32. And in fact, in a couple of chapters' time, we'll see that Rachel does indeed die in childbirth. And in fact, her death comes very soon after what seems to be another unusual offence involving household gods and totems that have snuck into the possession of Jacob's wider family. Have a look at me at how Laban's search for these stolen gods or these stolen totems plays out. Uh, have a look at verse 33 and read it together, uh, since we didn't read it a little bit earlier. Verse 33. Once Jacob has said, uh, if anyone is found in possession of the gods, they will face death, we read in verse 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, and into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two female servants, but he found nothing. After he came out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken her household gods and put them inside her camel and was sitting on them. Laban searched through everything in the tent, but found nothing. Rachel said to her father, don't be angry, my lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I am having my period. So he searched, but could not find the household gods. There is indeed a tragic irony in these verses. Given that these events occur really in the midst of Rachel still struggling to conceive the second son that she desperately wanted to have, that she had prayed to God she would eventually it's no coincidence that Rachel uses her period as a ruse to hide the gods that she has stolen. For Jacob's wives, for even for Rachel, even more than for Leah, the menstrual flow is not simply some socially awkward or even painfully debilitating monthly inconvenience. For Rachel, it's a sign, it's an unwelcome reminder that the second conception that she covets Leah for still has not been granted to her. And the tragic irony is that these gods or totems, whose favourite scenes Rachel still hopes might meet 
her heart's desire are utterly impotent to meet her for the maternal needs. And yet she still covets the favour of these gods or ancestors in some way, it seems. Uh, we don't have time to dig into this really unusual and quite interesting little exchange here much more this morning. But the Bible does actually have quite a bit to say about periods and women's body experiences. And I just want to recommend a brief uh, and very accessible and warm book, um, A Brief Theology of Periods, um, that I, I've got the, the details down there on the sheets, that I'd recommend you to have a read of. In fact, towards the end of it, it's got some really insightful reflections on how to think about our bodies and menopause as well, especially for women. And I'd recommend that you read it. The Bible has got a lot to say. The Bible is not inattentive to our godly selves and the way in which they interact with our lives of faith. Uh, in the verses that follow, including, they, they include uh, the signing of a non-aggression pact between Laban and Jacob. We don't have a chance to, to dive into that together this morning. Yet even this signing of a non-aggression pact between the two of them in the sight of God doesn't end all of Jacob's misplaced fears and favour seeking. Uh, let's have a look, pick up the story again in chapter 31, verse 55. Chapter 31, verse 55 is where we'll pick it up. After they've signed this uh, non-aggression pact and they've eaten a meal together, we read verse 55. Early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then he left and returned home. Jacob also went on his way. And the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. And so he named that place, Mahanam. Jacob sent his messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, in the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I'm sending this message to you, my Lord, that I might find favour in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother, Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Laban, we have just seen, had been pursuing Jacob with the power to do and Esau now, we read, is coming to meet Jacob with a company of 400 fighting men. It seems that Jacob can't catch a break. But in between this fleeing from Laban and being confronted by Esau, Jacob stumbles into the middle of a third military camp, a camp, we read, of God's own angels. In fact, the name of the place where Jacob stumbles across this angelic outpost actually means two camps. Now, might there have been two camps of angels there? One ready to protect Jacob as he flees from Laban, another from Esau? Is the name two camps perhaps signifying the apparent coincidence that God's angels and Jacob's family just so happen to be both camping in the same place at the same time? Whatever the significance of the name this place, two camps, is actually intended to mean, it certainly doesn't seem as if Jacob perceives that these angelic legions that he stumbled upon 
might have some relevance to him and to his situation. Certainly not from the way he goes about acting. Jacob sends messages ahead of him uh, to announce his imminent arrival to his estranged brother Esau, the brother who had planned and plotted to kill him 20 years earlier. And Jacob seems anxious, doesn't he, to inform Esau that he's returning home wealthy. That he, Jacob, isn't returning with any intention of stealing away what belongs to Esau. He's got plenty of his own wealth and family now. He comes seeking Esau's favour, not Esau's bad inheritance. But given that the messengers returned with a report that Esau's on his way, with a company of 400 fighting men, perhaps Jacob has good reason to be fearful. Uh, let's have a look at how he responds uh, in verse 7. Uh, I actually will read from, uh, from uh, verse 6. Chapter 32, verse 6. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and cattle to them. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left might escape. There's a great and sad irony in these verses that Jacob here is imagining that the extended family that God has given him through the midst of enormous trials and difficulties, are at risk from Esau's band of 400 fighting men. And then his best hope, in Jacob's own mind, his best hope is to divide his family in two. So at least, perhaps, maybe, at least half of them might come through this event, this, this situation. Yet only moments before, Jacob had stumbled to a military encampment of God's own angels. And it doesn't even seem to cross Jacob's mind that perhaps God has already got covered any potential threat that might arise to his house. Now, further down in verse 20, we find Jacob sending lavish gifts ahead to Esau in an attempt to turn Esau's anger away from his vulnerable family. Uh, have a look at me at verse 20. After having sent these gifts ahead to Esau, um, uh, Jacob says to his messengers, to be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify Esau with these gifts that I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, and he himself spent the night in the camp. The words there to pacify are very closely linked with the word for atonement to turn anger away from. Jacob's fear is that it's still up to himself to save himself, to deliver himself. Even while the double encampment of God's own angels perhaps stands ready at hand. Even though, in the course of this passage, we should note that a significant change has begun to take place in how Jacob reflects upon his vulnerable situation. For although he's scrambling to execute several backup plans at the same time for the safety of his own people, just in case God doesn't come through, he does for the first time ever humble himself in prayer to the God of his Father. I want to draw your attention 
to four aspects of Jacob's prayer that he offers to God within, from within the midst of this great distress. Uh, the prayer that Jacob prays is there in verses 9 to 12. Verse, chapter 32, verses 9 to 12. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, Go back to your country and to your relatives, and I will make you prosper. Notice there, first of all, in this prayer, Jacob gives recognition to God's call upon him to obey. Even in the midst of his great fear, he is reflecting on the fact that what he is doing is in obedience to God's call upon him. Fear and anxiety we face don't free us from the calls that God has upon our lives. And Jacob gives recognition to that straight up front. And then continuing on in verse 10, Jacob prays, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness that you have shown to your servants. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Here Jacob gives recognition of God's gracious and great character, that God has been faithful and kind to him despite his fears, despite his regular self-reliance. Jacob in his prayer confesses the character of the God to whom he is entrusting himself with great fear. And then continuing on, verse 11, Jacob prays, Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Israel, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. Here we see in Jacob's prayer a petition, a petition that God would save him from the source of the sin. And Jacob isn't at all vague about this. He names the fear directly to God in prayer. The thing that he is terrified and fearful of, he expresses directly, God save me from this. I'm fearful of what it could lead to. And then continuing on in his prayer, verse 12, Jacob concludes, But you, God, have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea which cannot be counted. Jacob concludes his prayer by refocusing upon God's promises, what God has said he will do, rather than what the fears might threaten to do to him. I put those four different points there with the verses beside them on the outline sheet if you'd like to go back and perhaps reflect. Jacob's great distress here is not completely unlike that expressed by the Lord Jesus as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Both Jacob and Jesus, we might recall, prayed alone at night, at least alone, humanly speaking. Both Jacob and Jesus pray as a band of armed men are coming towards them, threatening them. Both Jacob and Jesus had angels on hand at that moment to strengthen them for what lay ahead. For a friend's fear really can overpower frail human flesh. Obedience is often too much for our own mortal strength alone. We need God's strengthening in order to face it and continue trusting ourselves to God. 
the Lord Jesus as much as any of us. And yet there are also obvious differences between Jacob and Jesus as well. While both Jacob and Jesus are moved in their prayers leading up to the threatening moment, both Jacob and Jesus are moved in their prayer by a deep concern for God's people, people that God has entrusted into their care. Whereas Jacob concedes, look, I'm, not, I'm perhaps going to lose at least 50% of those people that God has given to me. Jesus declares as he approaches his own death that he has lost none of those whom God has entrusted into his care. While Jacob was willing to offer goats and sheep and camels as a gift to perhaps maybe if he's lucky, turn Esau's anger away from his people. Jesus offered his very self to certainly, without doubt, turn God's anger, justified anger, away from the sins of his own people. As vulnerable members of God's family, we have in the Lord Jesus one who is far greater than Jacob, as the Samaritan woman in the world of John's Gospel had recognised, if you remember, in our time in John's Gospel, uh, a term or so ago. Now, curiously, though, in this whole account, nothing is said about the fear and the anxiety and the experience of Jacob's wider family, about the insecurity and fear maybe experienced by the servants, the wives, and the children who were following Jacob, who'd been entrusted into Jacob's care. But Jesus does address directly the fears of his own followers, the 12 disciples, each one actually representing the tribe of Israel, each one representing one of Jacob's own children. Jesus does have something to say to their fears. Uh, let me read to you a little section that we read earlier this morning from Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus assures them of these words. Firstly, in verse 28 of chapter 10, Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus at this point is not simply saying that we need to fear whoever is the greatest threat to us. Rather, Jesus is saying that while some might exercise power over our bodily selves, God's sphere of authority reaches well beyond even the borders of death. God is one whose authority reaches beyond the grasp of anyone else who might threaten us. Fear, respect, honour, and entrusting ourselves to the one whose authority reaches the furthest is the behaviour that Jesus is calling us to here. And clearly it's a lesson that Jacob is still struggling to grasp and process and learn about the nature of God's authority and how far it extends in the care of him and God's people. And then in the following verses, they express something of the character of this heavenly Father to whom we are to entrust ourselves in prayer. Have a look at me the verses following, where Jesus asks, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your Father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Friends, if even a dead sparrow is not overlooked by God, if God's attentive care embraces even the sparrow that has fallen lifeless to the ground, 
then those belonging to God's favoured son of Jesus, are they not worth much more than even many sparrows, let alone a devil? It seems Jacob regularly feared that perhaps God's attentive care was about to waver. So he struggled with his backup plans. He grappled to secure what God had promised to give him freely own strength. And you can see the anxiety and fear that gripped him as a result. But in the Lord Jesus, God has given us one Jacob, greater One who can secure the security of God's family without any stumbling or failure. And in his name, we can trust ourselves confidently in the care of the God who's loving attention. Never Father, we so regularly view our own participation in communities, perhaps in our own families and friendship groups, as relationships that are vulnerable, that might be overturned, fall apart, or unravel at any moment. And yet, Father, our participation in the family of your favoured son, Jesus, is not like that. There is no fear that need leave us anxious that our position in your household is about to be undone. No favour that is worth luring us away from secure belonging in your own company. Father, where we are fearful, where other favours do draw us and draw our hearts, enable us to entrust ourselves to your Son, 